This is the future of finance by Motive Labs. Hello, welcome to the future of finance, the Motive Labs podcast, where we live and breathe the next generation of financial technology. everyone. My name is Henry Rashad, and I'm here with Vinit Sani from Arcara. As many of you know, I've uh, done these podcasts before. I sit on the Global Advisory Committee of Motive, and it's a pleasure to be back and to welcome Vinit Sani from Arcara. Vinit, how are you? Thank you, Henry. It's an honor to be in your company. <laughs> you know, I've known Henry for many, many years, and I say that with complete honesty. Just so I can be soft on my questions. Exactly. I just want Henry to ask me very nice, gentle questions. (laughs) So everyone, it's it's great to be here. I'm the co-CEO of Arcara. We're an uh, intelligence-based machine learning startup in London, and I'm looking forward to this session. So Vina, tell us a little bit more about Arcara. First, from the perspective of where did this come from? Where did you come up with the idea? You know, what was the history? I think it's more than an idea, Henry. It's uh, living 20 years of situations where you get blindsided all the time. So just a little bit of history for a minute. Uh, My co-founder or my co-CEO and I have known each other for about uh, 22 years now. And we've come from two sides of the fence, but both of us really experienced the pain of uh, being blindsided by lack of information, lack of clarity. And we finally decided to do something about it. The pain was too much, let me put it this way. So, you know, I think the sort of background of Arcara is personal experiences and stories. And this goes all the way from 97 when we, or 98 when we experienced long-term capital, Russia, the dot-com. You know, my co-founder was probably one of my most difficult, painful clients. And I was always challenged So you were him. institutional sales and he was in institutional trading. Exactly. So he came from a trading background. I came from a sales background, except I had the pleasure of working for Soros back in 2000, where I really experienced his pain. And then he experienced my pain as a salesperson when he was uh, working at Bank of America in 2010. But, you know, we both were really passionate about finding intelligence. And we were good at it, extremely good at it, except what happened in the last two decades is the actual volume of information has doubled. The markets are much more idiosyncratic, much more difficult to trade. They're not trending anymore. And the quality of human capital has been disseminating into the tech business and other businesses. So the talent pool has shrunk in general in the financial business. So it's becoming increasingly difficult for investors to make money. This problem existed back in the 90s, and I worked really hard. I used to get up at three in the morning. This is when I was in New York and call uh, clients in Europe and drive the European salespeople crazy, I remember. And NAV used to work pretty much around the clock to get an edge. And we could succeed then because you had a few sources. You had Bloomberg, you had Reuters, you had Tellerate in those days. I don't think people remember Tellerate. And you read two, three newspapers, you were fine. Now, there's information coming out of the woodworks. You have all kinds of blogs, and the chance of getting blindsided is way more. So you need to be extremely comprehensive Except what's happened on the other hand is the time you have to look at this has gone down because you've got multiple other things to do. As we know, you know, the whole sell side or the banks and the research capabilities have gone down. And again, as I say, the markets are much more idiosyncratic. 
So, so tell us, how did Arcara go about, say so you've identified the problem. Yeah. How did Arcara start to build up the solution to that problem? We understood the problem well. We understood the pain well. Now we really had to build the architecture or sort of the right medium because you can create technologies, but if it's not absorbed in the workflow of anyone using it, you're not going to get a take up. How do I put it? The potency is not going to be the same. So we really had to think extremely hard about how it gets absorbed in people's workflow. And that was the critical piece. We've seen a lot of technology companies that just come out with technologies, but they're not absorbed into the workflow. So we spent a lot of time on that bit also. We started from there. Then we went about looking for all kinds of open source technologies to see how we can piece the puzzle together. There's no point in making something if it exists. And that took a little bit of time. And we soon realized that this problem is not being solved because it's really hard to put the stack together. And that's where a one and a half year build out journey became a three year build out journey. <laughs> because what we were really focusing on was the output and the solution to the problem as a product. So that's why it took us about three years to really roll it out. Interestingly enough, the problem's just gotten worse. Which means that, you know, and, and what so our clients... fewer are, resources on the sales side for research, more information, more disaggregated and more fragmented information and so on and so forth. Exactly. And geopolitically, the market's just in a very different place right now than it was three years ago. So describe for us a little bit more the product and then we'll go back to the technology. Yeah. So the product, what it does in itself is it takes all the data. I'll give you an example. And this is an interesting example you had the Brazilian pension reform this year, and you had to literally track 513 policymakers to see what the vote's going to be like, except how do you do that? You've got a language issue, you're 5,000 miles away, and you really have to contextualize all this information. These are massive barriers for anyone, and it's all very unpredictable. So, you know, we basically had to not only assimilate this information, we had to actually make it completely homogeneous. We had to get all the, the meta components out. We really had to study what each person was saying in their own jurisdiction, compile it, and then contextualize it to see you know, what the vote's going to be like. And we succeeded. So that's just one example of what can happen. And so tell us a bit more about that. So do you get this from newspapers? How do you get all this information, especially so when something is in a different language, so far away, so remote really to what most money managers would be able to access? We're focused right now on open source intelligence. All the information exists out there. It's just difficult to find. Mm -hmm. And all these sources are not visible to human eyes. Mm -hmm. We just have the right algorithms to find it. And again, it's an assimilation of what we did for many years manually. Now we just have put it through algorithms. So it's a lot of our DNA has been coded into these algorithms mm -hmm. to find it. And I think that aspect is important because we typically look for stuff that's super relevant, even though we do a comprehensive sweep of it. But we focus on open source intelligence at this mm -hmm. point, Henry. Mm -hmm. Most of the guests on this podcast read our newsletter every week. So we thought you'd enjoy it too. It's called Brain Food. It comes out every Sunday morning and it's packed with all the things you need to know about financial services and technology. You can subscribe at motivepartners.com. So tell us a bit more about the technology. Give us a sense, please, Vinod, of, of how you and Nav have set it up and why it's able to surface things like Brazilian pension form votes. That's a great question. So to start with, we pick problems that are extremely expensive or difficult simply because 
uh, your audience there is already ready and primed. And therefore, I think Brazilian pension reform is a classic example where I think the language issue is very prevalent. And also, it sits in many disparate sources, and they're completely heterogeneous. So it becomes extremely difficult then to make sense of it so that it can be absorbed in someone's decision-making. And how we do that is we do a comprehensive sweep. We build machine learning uh, algorithms that capture all this information. Uh, they don't have to clean it because there's a lot of noise. It's highly unstructured data. There are all kinds of ads and all kinds of noise in it. And if you don't clean it properly, you'll read the wrong signals. Then we've created our own NLP technologies that have the ability to be language agnostic and to flatten it out to make sure that you, know, you go into an even playing field. Then you have to capture all the entities properly. After you capture all the entities, you then need to connect the dots and you use graph databases, different technologies for that. And what you're doing typically is you're interrogating the data. And that's typically what a human does. So we are, to some extent, replacing or augmenting to a large extent the human function, which is our goal in the future. And then I think you typically get what you're looking for. Well, clearly you set the problem. The problem is how do I predict Brazilian pension reform in this situation, thousands of others. But the way you've described the gathering in the information and then creating a technology stack that allows you to really understand it and draw conclusions from it is quite illustrative. And it shows the you know, importance of being able to get that technology stack right to be able to scale. So what you've described sounds really super interesting. Give us a sense of who some of the early clients have been and, and how have they used it? That's a great question. We basically started with a very high, high bar. We went for the smartest hedge funds and the most sophisticated of market makers and banks. We realized that these people are extremely overloaded with information. And if they value it, what we've created is truly expensive and valuable. So we purposely went for that. It was a high bar to climb because, you know, from there, we know we can actually scale. And if you have a product market fit there, you know that everyone else will value it. So, you know, those were our initial clients and we're scaling that now. Give us some other examples of use cases, please, Vinian, either for this client base or other client bases, because what you've described is quite a strong technological capability, right? And then I can imagine you could throw a whole series of different questions at the platform to be able to extract all sorts of interesting predictions around the future. Yeah, so, you know, within the financial sector, there's, there's multiple other interesting use cases. A common example uh, is that to capture a yield in assets is becoming much more difficult. Most bonds are negative yielding, stock markets look expensive, and there's a surplus of cash out there because central banks have been providing easy money for a very long time. Therefore, for investors who are not the super large investors, they struggle to find assets and they have to basically you know, get crumbs. Unless you start originating this yourself before it hits, hits the normal distribution channels. So the ability for us to surface good deals for these kind of people from open source intelligence is a classic way for some of these people to circumvent common distribution platforms. So that's one very interesting way. It's, again, a very expensive problem. Yeah. If you can't originate assets and if you can't invest money, you have a big problem. 
because you're suddenly going to be faced with negative yields on cash. Yeah. And they're already there. So that's one interesting use case. Mm. There's a few other use cases. You know, There's a field of intelligence, which is very, very interesting right now. I think uh, with what's going on in geopolitics and trade war, sanctions, etc., how do you basically stay ahead of these situations? How do you make sure that when you're looking at risk functions or compliance functions, you're basically going to avoid a secondary sanction? You're not looking at clients who have connections with sources you shouldn't be looking at. You need to have entities connect with each other. A lot of these relationships are not evident to the human eye. They sit in multiple sources and they've happened over multiple time frames. How does human brain look at this? Yeah. I and mean, we're talking about, for instance, even in Brazil, you know, if you're looking at 50, 100,000 articles a day, how many humans can do that? It's an impossible task an impossible for anyone. Task, yeah. So, you're, you're, you know. What you're describing is a journey of first either augmenting or potentially even replacing salespeople for an institutional type of business to then being able to augment or even replace certain compliance functions or certain intelligence functions, certain risk functions. I mean, it's a fairly broad platform that you've described. I think you've hit the nail on the head. I can see the smile from Henry. Um, <laughs> you know, he was probably a master at making sure costs were effectively managed. Um, but if you look at the sell side right now, it's very clear. The alpha comes from cost cutting. All of them talk about AI and replacing humans. Very few people actually understand what it takes. I don't think the human can be replaced right now per se. I think a lot of functionality of the human can be replaced. And if you keep going up the cognitive scale. So I think what we are doing... But, but let, yeah. me, let me ask this for a second. So let's say that somebody comes to you with a real left field kind of question. How long does it take you and Nav and the rest of the team to really train the machine learning algorithms and to do the cleansing of the data to get real actionable results? Give us an example of something that you've done recently, start to finish. How quickly can you get up to speed on a particular subject? Set? Well, we had, we had literally four days very early in our journey to do the Nigerian elections, and we did that in three days. And our suitor or our client was not any normal institution. <laughs> uh, it was a top, top, top institution. And we did, did that right? in four days. Sorry? Did you get it right? I think so. I would say so. <laughs> uh, I don't like to brag, but you know, if you do the work, you get the results. It's a lot of work behind the scenes. Again, not just capturing the data is one because they're in sources, but then interrogating it properly and therefore, you know, if you look at our website, it says machine learning, human thinking. You do need that human thinking to interrogate the data. Otherwise, you're just adding to information overload. So you can have a very negative effect by putting in technology, but just change that. And suddenly you get a magnified positive effect with 50x leverage to a human. So that was one where, again, you capture everything about election and you try and predict the results start to finish, you take a whole country, you got to map out everything what's going on there. You got to map out entities that you know exist and entities you don't know that exist. So it's both. You then need to find all sources and it needs to find all of it. And you have to make sure... In local languages. Yeah, a lot of it is local. Luckily, you know, Nigeria was very English dominated, so it made it easier. But nevertheless, again, you know, this is highly unstructured data. It's not in tables. And again, when you're dealing with a very sophisticated client base, your bar is already very, very high. So 
So that's just one example very early. Fantastic. So a couple of questions extracting from your experience at Arcara, especially for those of our listeners who might be running their own businesses and so on and so forth. Give us a couple of learnings, you know, things that you've found more challenging than you thought you would be challenging, things that you found easier than you thought would be the case when you first started. I think you have to feel the pain. <laughs> that's one. Um, you know, describe, describe the pain. Yeah, we've had, you know, we spent 20 years dealing with big problems, but different problems. Now we're handling a different problem. I think the pains are that you sometimes get the problem right. You get the problem and the product right, but you may get the audience slightly wrong. Right. And as a startup, you don't have the luxury. Yeah, yeah. So getting that product market fit. Um, it's critical. Yeah. And especially when you're dealing with very tight milestones. Yeah. You don't have the luxury, at least in your early years. I think later on you can have different pods yeah. where you can run it. So that's critical. The important thing is that you can't get bogged down by it. As soon as you realize that you made a mistake, you've got to turn and move fast. Yeah. Uh, and then you've got to get everyone behind you. You've got to motivate everyone and make sure then you think straight. Yeah. Uh, so the other thing is you have to learn from your mistakes. You can't be dogmatic about it. If you made a mistake, you made a mistake. So I think having that resilience, apart from just having great technology, a super team, a huge problem you're dealing with, that product market fit in the earlier years is super important. You and Nav both had combined, <laughs> I mean, between the two of you, probably 45, 50 years more almost 60 years of experience in the markets. Feeling old now. No, no, but, but you're an unusual set of entrepreneurs and founders from that regard. Right. Describe that to us. Good, bad, indifferent, doesn't matter. At any age, would you rather have done this when you were 30 rather than when you were 40? I think we, we felt ready when we did it, and we really wanted to do this. There was a massive pull factor for us. That's super critical. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times you hear people do it because they just like technology or they want to try something. I think for us, we both reached the same conclusion at the same time, which was very fortunate because, you know, I trust NAB more than anything else. You know, again, we've been through thick and thin. We've been together in banks where people have tried to arb us as much as possible. And we've, we've remained steadfast. So I trust him as much as family. But the bottom line is that I think both of us really understood the problem, felt strongly about it. And interestingly enough, the technology stack or where the technology is moving, people's awareness of adopting this technology and the problem all presented itself at the same time. And the only thing is, you know, we hadn't taken on a pure entrepreneurial role. Both of us, the lives we led was always of an entrepreneur within a bank or a hedge fund because we were brought in to shake things up, to drive businesses. But when you're running a business as a founder or co-CEO, the challenges are very different. So I don't think people should discount that. Anyone who's made it big, and I give credit to all People, especially I know the B2B space, kudos to them. I think it takes a lot of resilience. And anyone who says it's easy, it's just not. You just need to be very persistent and driven. Tell us, uh, we're sitting here in Canary Wharf at the moment, and you founded Arcara here in London. Why London? You could have done anywhere in the world. Literally anywhere in the world, given uh, the backgrounds that you two have, uh, why London? You know, Nav and I both spent 10 years in New York working and then Tokyo, Hong Kong, we've lived everywhere, London 10 years now. I think London provides the right backdrop. You're kind of right in the middle of the action across all time zones. Now we have a global product and the problem is global also. So we kind of sit right in between Asia, LATAM, US, etc. Talent pool is great. You know, we've got a great team of 34 people. We all sit under one roof. We're all full time and all of us drive each other. It's sort of programmed for the client base. I don't think we can easily find the same setting. Maybe we can, and we do have plans. We have a U.S. office, 
So we do have plan to have a big team there, but we like it here and it just seemed like the right place, right time. I'm curious, where do your people come from? Describe a little bit more the ideal employee for Arcara. The ideal employee is someone who is, <laughs> I have one factor which I attribute a lot of weight to, and that's hunger. They need to have hunger. They need to all be self-starters. If they're not self-starters hungry, they could be like the most brilliant person on earth. We'll never take them. So that's critical. They also need to be resilient because a startup by itself means you can fail and you jump up and you fight. Big institutions are not primed to fail, but startups are. And that's the beauty of a startup. Anyone who's driven and who's really hungry should work for a startup because it's the only place where you can fail multiple times and you're paid for it. <laughs> so, so we find the best of talent, apart from, you know, from a pedigree point of view, it needs to be the same DNA, strong DNA, but also self-starters, people who really have an agenda. The only other alternative is being an entrepreneur themselves. And how many people have more of a financial background and how many people would be much more focused on technology and machine learning, natural language processing? That's a good blend. We have a team of consumers that sits in the company that's why we're very different from any other startup. We sort of live the problem inside. And so what we've done is maybe These are people who would have like a financial research kind of Exactly. Background. But they don't need to have worked in finance for 10 years. We give a lot of our training. You know, having trained people over the years, Nav and I are very good at that. We're very hands-on. Mm-hmm. We typically in 6.30 in the morning, making sure, mm-hmm. you know, the training starts early. And we train people to really be the eyes and ears of the clients. And, and therefore, the last bit is always done by sets of consumers. We think this is a supermodel forward mm-hmm. because it really... So they're the ultimate quality control for all of the... Quality control, the exactly, industry. I think. Uh, and, and you don't add to the overload then. You're actually mm-hmm. sending in really valuable stuff. That's great. Tell us, Vinay, how many different countries and languages can you do now? What are the next steps? You know, from what you described, something that's scalable quickly and relatively easily. But there's a lot of languages out there, a lot of different countries, a lot of problems that can be thrown at this platform. So we, we went for some of the more difficult languages initially. You know, we started Turkish. Turkish is not an easy one and multiple sources. But again, you know, a lot of volatility and we like that. You can actually start capturing information with other currency. We do Arabic, uh, Turkish, Spanish, Portuguese. We're going to start tackling some of the other Asian languages quite quickly. And, you know, I think our system, our technologies, our language agnostic is just now how quickly we scale. Our goal is to be a player in lots and lots of markets for specific problems. We are seeing a lot of interest in the space of intelligence and other areas too, but we are being very, very disciplined about doing things we're doing extremely well and making sure we provide the highest performance. So at this point, we're in four to five languages, but the plan is to be scaled in multiple languages. I think India itself, I don't know how many languages it has, so <laughs> that'll be an interesting challenge. And especially when you get into you know, China, there's so many dialects and issues, they'll get challenging, but hey, we're ready for it. That's wonderful. Vinit, uh, thank you very much for joining us today nice. here pleasure. at Motive in Canary Wharf. True pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for your time and insights. And thank you very much for tuning in. I'm Sam. See you next time. 
The information contained in this podcast is intended for discussion purposes only. It is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation for the purchase or sale of a security or any services of motive partners. All investing involves risk, and there is no guarantee that past performance will be indicative of future results. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are as of the date of recording, reflect the views and opinions of the persons expressing them, and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of motive partners. Motive partners makes no representations or warranties as to the accuracy, reliability, or completeness of any information provided, and undertakes no obligation to update, amend, or clarify the information in the podcast, whether as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. Any securities, transactions, or holdings discussed may not represent investments made by motive partners. It should not be assumed that securities, transactions, or holdings discussed, if any, were or will be profitable, or that the recommendations or decisions made in the future will be similar, or will equal the performance of the securities, transactions, or holdings discussed herein. This podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are based on beliefs, assumptions, current expectations, estimates, and predictions about the financial industry the economy, motive partners or motive partners investments. Nothing in the podcast should be construed or relied upon as investment, legal, accounting, tax or other professional advice or in connection with any offer or sale of securities.